Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Big questions about work requirements still and spending levels. Speaker McCarthy uh, suggesting that some of these were, in fact, democratic ideas. Listen to how he put it. We've offered a lot of concessions. The cap on the spending is a Democrat idea. The work, the work requirement was a Democrat idea. The time, I can't help it if the Democrats have become so extreme and now is a party of Bernie Sanders than the party where Joe Biden was elected. That's He said a lot there. The work requirements and the spending caps were Democrat ideas. Let's bring in Congressman Mark Pocan, Democrat from Wisconsin, who co-chairs the House Progressive Caucus. Congressman, welcome back to Bloomberg. It's great to have you here. Uh, I'm guessing that you would take issue uh, with that suggestion. Does the idea of work requirements or additional work requirements, to be more specific, make you a no vote? Well, the problem is there are no concessions. That's not a concession to say uh, that these ideas, wherever he thinks they came from, he has not conceded yet. Now, today is the first time it sounds like he might be realizing how close we are to this deadline. But all they've said is the president won't come to negotiate. He's not coming enough to negotiate. The president keeps bringing different proposals to them. They have not budged from their extremely rigid proposal. Mm. Things like uh, work requirements belong in the farm bill. That's where we deal with those. Let's hope we can get that done this year. I'm not sure Kevin McCarthy can control his caucus to do that. Uh, Much of the spending stuff he wants to do happens through the appropriations process, but they can't even write the appropriation bills because Kevin's caucus uh, is is pretty uh, extreme. And, And those are the real issues. Kevin McCarthy can't control his caucus, and he has not come and put concessions on the table. It's not a concession to say he's taking an idea from somewhere. You actually have to go to the table and negotiate. Otherwise, you're squatting. And that's all the Republicans yeah. have done to this point. And we're awfully close to the deadline for squatting. Well, I, and I realize you take issue with his characterization there, Congressman, but I wonder if if that ends up in a final bill, if, if you have spending caps and additional work requirements, uh, there's a there's a thought that Democratic votes are going to be needed here to pass this. Would the president have yours? Obviously, we have to see something. I mean, the Republicans, as I've said, have not put a single concession down as of about a day ago. And, you know, if they are willing to finally really negotiate, we know the president has put some things down, like freezing spending uh, at the current year's level. He has put ideas forth to try to get to uh, making sure that we don't destroy the U.S. economy. The real problem is, again, Kevin can't control his caucus. I serve on the Appropriations Committee. We had three full days to mark up appropriation bills. They've only been able to write four of the 12 bills, relatively minor ones, and then they had to pull those because they can't even get those passed. The problem is the vote they did that their so-called position for negotiating represents 22% cuts for all discretionary non-defense spending. That's veterans benefits, that's Meals on Wheels programs, that's education, health care, go on and on. 
And then suddenly they say, well, we won't really mean we're going to cut this or that. Well, then that pushes more pressure on 30% cuts to some programs. There's a reason they haven't put it to paper is because there's, it's so ridiculous that there's no way their public would support those cuts. So they're like playing a game of fantasy Congress. And the rest of us understand there's a real world going on here. Well, it's interesting from your view on the Appropriations Committee here. Uh, once uh, spending caps are addressed, let's say there is a deal on on budget controls and spending caps going forward here. You can figure out or you can you can uh, sort of fill in the blank on what duration it would be. Does your committee then get back into the process of working uh, under those numbers is because there's a big argument over, well, what's going to get cut? And they're only talking about top line spending levels. So when do we find out what happens inside uh, each committee and each agency? Well, exactly. That's the problem. Remember, the Democrats and the president put a budget forward. We have asked since March for the Republicans to do that. And again, they can't because you can't put those 22 percent cuts to paper. It'd be ridiculous. So hopefully if the agreement somehow becomes something like caps, then at least the Republicans would have top lines that we would then do the appropriation process. Yep. But right now, they don't even have top lines per each of the, the 12 appropriation bills because, again, you can't put the ridiculous budget that they proposed actually onto paper. And I think that's been lost a little in this. You know, they're trying to have some face saving. They put a totally ridiculous uh, position out there for negotiating uh, but you can't actually make it real. And I think they're looking for that lifeboat right now. Um, and we're just trying to make sure we don't crash the U.S. economy. Well, so what are you hearing uh, from the leadership, Congressman, or are you not on, on where things stand right now? Are you hearing from the White House? Are you getting updates from anyone? Yeah, I mean, Hakeem Jeffries has been uh, great in uh, talking to the caucus. And I think he shares my frustration. You know, every time so far that you know people have come to the table, the Republicans don't budge from their position. That's why I call it squatting, not negotiating. I mean, you know, anyone who's negotiated in their life, even if it's something as simple as buying a car uh, between, you know, two spouses, uh, you know, knows that you have to have a little give and take and there's compromise. Republicans haven't been willing to do that. We need them to be more serious about this. And I get it. You know, I mean, if, if anyone thought the Adams family is different, you know, look at the Republican caucus, right? Adams family looks pretty normal compared to them. Uh, I get the difficulty Kevin McCarthy has. But he's also in leadership, and he has to stand up and do this. And if not, we have a fail-safe of a discharge petition that the Democrats have put forward. Yeah. We only need five or six Republicans to help do the right thing. Do they exist? Uh, and if nothing else, the president could uh, look at the 14th Amendment. But the only fail for everyone would be if we don't deal with this and we do downgrade our economy uh, that would be an avoidable error that the Republicans, unfortunately, have put us. Well, do four or five Republicans exist to sign off on a discharge petition? Well, there's plenty, like in the Senate, and like normal Republicans around the country. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan and, and Donald Trump, before he didn't say it, uh, always said we should do this because we lifted it three times for Donald Trump. I mean, normal Republicans, and there are plenty of them, know this is the right thing to do. The problem is in that Republican caucus. You know, you can't let Marjorie Taylor Greene be the only one who gets the car keys. There are normal people in that caucus. Um, maybe right. it's time to give them a chance to drive the car. But, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't represent that, that House Republican caucus congressman. And I just, you know, I, I have the, the opportunity to talk with lawmakers every day. And it's just been us versus them, them versus us. They're squatting in your in, in your representation, the chaos Congress and so forth. This is the reason why I think a lot of people are, are walking around wondering, I don't know. Can we trust 
our elected representatives to figure this out because it seems to be a you know a political game uh, more than an, an effort here to come to terms and, and save us from a default. Well, and you point out the very problem. This is a stupid vote. Period. I've said this since <laughs> I got to Congress. I served on the Budget Committee. You know, when when if you are a family and you sign a mortgage. Uh, you don't get the choice of whether or not every month you're going to mail your check. Because if you don't mail the check, you lose your home and you destroy your credit. It's no different for the United States government. So we have something that we're still working off of from 1917 that was there to limit how much money we put into war bonds for World War I. And now today it's a tool that a small number of people, including the Marjorie Taylor Greene wing of the Republican Party, which unfortunately is a pretty big wing, uh, that uh, doesn't either understand or want to budge on it. Look, this is a dumb vote. Uh, you know, the thing that would make me the happiest part of any negotiation is just get rid of it so we never have to do this again. Yeah. That would be a good suggestion, and I think a bipartisan one. Of course, if you did away with the debt limit, you'd actually have to have regular order and go through the process of debating a budget, and I'm not sure the last time was that happened. You know, there are many things. Back, uh, Reed Ribble, Republican from Wisconsin, used to have a proposal, and I supported it to do it every two-year process, like mm-hmm. we do in many legislatures. Mm-hmm. So one year you could do more of the review and the you know the, the thoughtful work, and one year you put a budget out. I mean, there's a lot of other solutions we could do, but you know, right now the problem is things like the filibuster rules in the Senate, things like the debt ceiling vote, things that only make sense in Washington are the rules that we're playing by, and that's part of why this is such a messy process so you know if this is something that we can correct we should certainly try to and we spoke with senator uh, chris van hollen uh, the other day he's actually got a bill and there is a, a sponsor i think I believe congressman schatz is on that uh, bill to eliminate the debt limit but he doesn't have the votes why not if everyone agrees this is a stupid vote as you put it why not get rid of it everyone who's a real person across the country would think this is a stupid thing like you said people look at this and like why do they just fight for the sake of fighting problem is in Washington, it allows a minority of people to muck the entire system up. And so, again, right now with that very small, somewhat ungovernable margin they have in the House Republican majority, uh, it's hard for them to do anything on this. Brendan Boyle has a bill on this. I think I've signed yeah. on to every bill I can to do just this because it is so stupid. And what we're experiencing right now has very real ramifications for stupid Washington games. And, uh, you know, it's not a sexy issue, and the public's probably not going to jump to this position, but I think for those of us who follow this closely know how dumb what we're going through is, (laughs) how unnecessary it is. Well, I'm glad you're not holding back. I have less than a minute, Congressman. Can you you tell our listeners that that we're not going to default next week? (sighs) I would hope that there are responsible Republicans um, in the communities, uh, in Wall Street and business and other places who know the ramifications and either we get some Republicans to join us on a discharge petition uh, or we get Kevin McCarthy to have whatever, some win to be able to take back. I understand it. The real win is just doing our jobs, which is lifting the yeah. debt ceiling. And then let's have a fight and conversation about appropriations and the farm bill and everything else. Congressman, come back and talk to us about the farm bill because no one is yet. Congressman Mark Pocan, Democrat from Wisconsin, getting us rolling on Sound On. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Ron DeSantis is finally going for it. He's going to make it official. And he will not be alone. As you've been hearing on Bloomberg, the governor of Florida announcing his presidential campaign tonight on Twitter spaces with none other than the guy who owns the platform, Elon Musk. He was asked about it at a Wall Street Journal conference yesterday. We'll be interviewing um, Ron DeSantis, and he has quite an announcement to make. Um, And we'll be be the first time that something like this is happening on social media and with uh, real time questions and answers. Uh, not not scripted, uh, so it's going to be live and let 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 her up. Let's see what happens. Let her rip. Let's see what happens. Those are the ground rules for the campaign announcement. Nancy Cook can't wait. She's actually in Florida for this. Uh, Bloomberg National Politics reporter has been our DeSantis whisperer for the past uh, couple of months. Nancy, it's great to have you. I hope it's a beautiful day in the Sunshine State. Why would he do it this way, and why would he use Elon Musk? Well, uh, thanks for having me, Joe. I sure. think that it really um, signals the types of cam- the type of campaign that he's going to run. Um, you know, it's going to be a very uh, social media heavy, non traditional campaign that really doubles down on a lot of the culture wars that we're seeing on the Twitter platform. And of course, you know, Elon Musk has really tangled with the former president Donald Trump before, and so I think it's also you know a little bit of a, a troll of Trump too to do it uh, to announce on that platform. It is a troll, too, right, to show up with one of the richest people in the world when the other guy you mentioned, Donald Trump, is very sensitive about his net worth. Is that part of this calculation? Well, I think it's it's part of it. And also, you know, Musk has said he has been critical of Trump in the past. And so I think DeSantis mm-hmm. is trying to show that, you know, he can win over people who may have turned away from Trump. There's not going to be an endorsement here, though, right? That's what we're told. No, I don't think that there's going to be an endorsement, but I just I, I think that the fact that he's doing it with the candidate definitely signals, you know, some sort of alliance. Well, it's it sure seems like it, although, I, you know, maybe Elon has everybody on in, in the field at some point stop by to, to do the quote unquote interview. Um, are there really no ground rules here? Is there kind of is this they're, they're going to they're going to wing it tonight? Well, you know, usually DeSantis participates in very, very heavily scripted um, media events. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, Musk and Twitter are saying there are no ground rules. I would be surprised if the DeSantis camp sort of let it go to that. They tend to really prefer to give speeches and rallies more than sort of unscripted moments. Um, but we'll have to wait and see what he says. I, I think regardless, the point is, is that it's going to be a very friendly interview and a friendly announcement. I believe that part. Nancy, thank you. Good luck with the coverage in Florida. Nancy Cook with us for Bloomberg as we reassemble our panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano uh, are here. Rick, uh, this is a curious one. Uh, Maybe you would have done it exactly the same way, but what's the calculation? Why would Ron DeSantis want to make the announcement, number one, on Twitter spaces, which seems to be a a little bit of an esoteric choice, but also to show up with Elon? Is, Is it making a statement? 
Well, I think he's probably, one, chasing the kind of eyeballs that uh, he thinks he wants to uh, get in order to fundraise and organize. So uh, at least in social media, you can pretty much target the audience. And and it won't be any smaller than if he'd have gone on a morning show or even a late night talk show, yeah. uh, which was typical in the old days. I mean, you'd That's go right. on Letterman and you'd say, oh, I'm going to run for president. Yes. Letterman would make a joke about it, you know. <laughs> right. And uh, and so I have no doubt that Elon will probably not make a joke about it. but. Uh, I would say putting himself uh, exposed to Q and A, you know, on the platform mm-hmm. uh, is a little unusual for real time questions. Uh, real time questions for for DeSantis because he likes control, and it's not media, it's not reporters. Right. He's going to get asked hard questions, but like, how will they pick the questions? Yeah. And you know, like, how's that town square going to work? And so, yeah. uh, it, I think it's a quite a bit of an experiment for a guy who's not used to experimenting. Does this make Elon Musk then the the new David Letterman when it comes to presidential candidates, Jeannie? That's quite a comparison. You know, <laughs> one one of the <laughs> dangers. It's pretty good. Yeah, it is. And one of the dangers here for, for Ron DeSantis is that, you know, Elon Musk is an erratic guy. Uh, you don't know what he's going to say, when he's going to say it, either today, tomorrow, or in a week or a month. And, you know, this is somebody who not long ago has been, you know, talking about Tim Scott very positively. We'll hear what he says tonight. But going forward, you know, you associate yourself, whether you're a business or you're a campaign, with somebody who's erratic. And you pay the price if they act erratically. You know, this is somebody who has said a lot of really, uh, you know, shocking things over time. So it is a, a decision that DeSantis's team has made, but there are risks associated with it. And I think we should take bets on whether t- uh, Donald Trump decides to get back on Twitter tonight and to oh. troll Ron DeSantis as a result of this. He hasn't been back on yet, but that would be great. So a question from the does. real Donald Trump in Florida. <laughs> Go ahead, Mr. Trump. Yeah, that's actually I love the idea here, uh, but it does make you wonder, uh, Rick, with this said, we know Tucker Carlson is going to have his new show on Twitter. We know the way people feel about Elon Musk and what's happened to the algorithm and whatever the heck is going on on that platform right now. Does does this make officially Twitter the the platform for the right wing? Well, I definitely think that Elon Musk is competing with Rupert Murdoch a little bit. Right. And uh, and I think Rupert Murdoch probably deserves to be competed with. Uh, he's been sitting on top of the conservative uh, uh, news channel uh, for a long time, uh, really dictating to Republican primary voters what they're going to see and what they're not going to see. So the fact that Elon's going to give him a run for his money, uh, I think, is, is, is fascinating because uh, when you think about it, uh, Twitter has the potential of having a major impact uh, on the election cycle. Mm-hmm. And if Elon Musk is going to use it to sort of showcase his favorable candidates and go after those that he doesn't like, uh, then I think it, it could have a similar impact as to what Fox has done in a very similar vein in, pa- in the past. You're going to be watching this, I'm sure, uh, Jeannie, then next week becomes uh, the real quote-unquote announcement, the in-person one, uh, said to involve a baseball field, apple pies, and so forth. What's the point of that if you're doing this? Yeah, this reminds me like when my kids were little, they would say, I want my birthday to last all week. And, you know, this is what DeSantis is doing tonight, Twitter, tomorrow, you know, then we get the video, then we get the in person. You know, this is going to go on and on. Um, You know, listen, he's trying to hit every angle he can. And, you know, the reality is Twitter is very popular among certain sectors. Most of those people don't change their minds. They're very politically engaged and they know what they think. So he is going to go the more traditional route. We know he's going to go on Fox News. We know he is going to do this in 
person. We know he's got the video um, with this, you know, uh, this sort of um, him coming out sort of in a godlike yeah. fashion. So he's going <laughs> to hit all angles and try to see if he can raise as much money and get as much play as he can, traditional and social media. Rick, if he were your guy, would you be there with your finger on the button ready to pull the plug if this took a wrong turn? If he were my guy, he yeah. wouldn't be sitting there with <laughs> okay. Elon Musk to begin with. That answers everything. <laughs> Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We're live from Washington where everyone's asking the same question. Will they reach a deal today? Kaylee Lines just joined us. Bloomberg's Wendy Benjaminson is with us in studio here in Washington as well, also with an eye on uh, probably both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, to be clear. <laughs> uh, Wendy, we heard from the speaker a little bit earlier before this negotiating session began, and he's not in the room for this. But with all of the frustration and the bluster and the the sort of the, the veiled threats that, that are being sent through the media, he said something that seemed uh, actually quite positive and uh, optimistic if we can zero in on this. I am not going to give up. We're not going to default. We're going to solve this problem. I will stay with it until we can get it done. But let's be honest about this. We have to spend less than we spent last year. It is not my fault that the Democrats cannot give up on their spending. Okay, not going to give up, not going to default. Those are good takeaways, but also spend less, not $130 billion less, just less. Does that mean that they're actually coming closer to a number? It could mean that. It also seems to be that Kevin McCarthy's position through the last few days has been, we're going to get there. I can feel a deal is happening, but I'm not budging. So it's all on the Democrats to budge. And we don't really know what's going on in the room. I presume that these negotiators who are both members of Congress, the OMB director, the White House budget director, and other, you know, pretty top senior officials who know what they're doing, There may be some given, one would hope there's some give and take going on in the room because the posturing outside the room is you're not acting urgently. Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. You're not. There's, you know, it's not a real X date. Yes, it is. You know, so it's hard to tell what's going on, you know, judging by what people are saying outside the room. But the fact that Kevin McCarthy said we are not going to default, that's the the sentence that I would literally take to the bank. I guess it's my question is whether or not the speaker can really promise that, right? Because maybe he can deliver the deal, negotiate the deal with the White House. He then has to deliver the votes from the House. Then the votes have to be delivered from the Senate. There is still the question of time here and, frankly, whether anything these two sides ultimately can hammer out gets through. Because as we talk about all the external noise, you're also hearing from the far wings of both parties about stuff that they don't like and they may end up disappointed. Right. And they may end up with a short term deal. They're all saying they're not going to do it. They're mm-hmm. absolutely not going to do that. But if it comes to exactly what Kaylee's talking about, that they kind of have a deal, but they've got to wrangle, they've got to whip votes, right. they've got to you know, threaten people with their careers, <laughs> things like that. Um, <laughs> then if that's happening, they may, as the X day looms or passes, pass a short-term, maybe even two-day debt ceiling increase yes. so that they can get to the real but, and that's a, that. Look, we've seen certainly that movie before, but that would come, to your point, with a deal struck, knowing that, gosh, right. I mean, I, look, we, we talked this out in terms of the calendar a little bit earlier. If there's a vote on Saturday, they might be able to get this done, but we're also not factoring in 72 hours for the Senate. So once they come to a deal, 
Then you buy, what, three, four days just to get the thing passed, get, let the ink dry, let people read it, get it passed. That's different than saying we're going to kick the can. That is different. That yeah. is, And I think uh, hopefully the markets and others would react similarly to that. This is just buying enough time to dot the I's, cross the T's. Yeah. And there are um, a group of Democrats have gotten together and said that they will support McCarthy if he is if the right wing caucus decides to throw to try to throw him out. So there's a sense of maybe a little give and take here um, in order to get this done. Well, I'll tell you, it's going to be interesting to figure this out um, because we still have a lot to learn. Obviously, Uh, it's been suggested, though, that this meeting today, the one that's underway, must generate at least a framework or everyone's going home tomorrow or everyone's going home tomorrow, which, you know, for those of us who might have to work this weekend, wouldn't be that bad. Economic collapse would be worse, of course. But, um, you know, it's uh, yeah, the as we like to say around here, jet fumes are a uh, (laughs) do get people to the smell of jet fumes, do get people to get to work. Mm -hmm. But we'll see what happens. That's what we're all waiting for now is for them to come out of this meeting and tell us good or bad what happened and how close we really are. Thanks for stopping by. Sure. Don't be a stranger. (laughs) As we go from Wendy Benjaminson to Wendy Schiller, the professor of political science, professor of international and public affairs, director of the Taubman Center for American Politics and Policy at Brown University. Uh, Wendy, take me out of the beltway here for a moment. Uh, We know that the polling data shows that that a majority of Americans would like to see some kind of a spending agreement going along with raising the debt limit. But I'm guessing there's a big eye roll here from coast to coast at at just the the ugly tenor uh, of the politics involved here, the name calling, the the veiled threats and so forth. This is why people hate Washington, right? Well, yeah, it's no way to run a rodeo. You know, you have, you know, a huge economy and the economy is actually withstanding inflation. You know, manufacturing is dipping a little bit, but the economy seems to be holding uh, unemployment's low. Uh, and people are like wondering, what is the deal? You know, you made a commitment, you issued bonds, you said you would pay interest on the bonds, you got to pay your debt. I mean, this is, you know, if we all have to pay our credit card bills and our student loans, for example, you have to pay, the government has to pay its debt. And I think most Americans have no idea about the complexity of how the Treasury, you know, manages to do that. Uh, what they see is Kevin McCarthy got a bill passed. I mean, the pressure is really on the Democrats in a lot of ways. Because yeah. Kevin McCarthy already got a bill through. And it's an well, extreme cut the Democratic Senate wouldn't take, but he got it through his party and people thought, oh, you won't be able to do that. And he already right. did it. Well, look, I can't argue with you. And it does seem that with the uh, with the lack of talking coming from the White House, we've had some remarks. The president held a news conference in Japan on Sunday. Bloomberg was able to ask him about it. We hear from the press secretary late in the day each day. But the press secretary is is not an elected official. And Republicans have been in lockstep, very effective, whether you agree with them or not, entirely consistent on messaging. And it's starting to weigh on the White House, isn't it? Well, yeah. And also, you never want to say too much because then you can strain your bargaining positions. Right. And and Biden's got to shore up a different set of constituents in the House and the Senate to vote for this bill. You know, if Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and some other people decide to go off the ranch and not vote for it, He's got a really significant problem in the Senate if they can even get it out of the House. And, you know, you're persuading these Democrats who said, oh, we'll support Kevin McCarthy as speaker. You know, who knows how many of those people will be retiring? I'm sure there's sort of a a whole conversation going on now. Who can afford to vote for this debt ceiling? And the Republicans say, you know, we can afford to lose the, you know, Matt Gaetz's Marjorie Taylor Greene, Chip Roy contingent. 
uh, if we know we'll have eight, nine, ten Democratic votes. Can right. you promise us that you'll have that? Because we're not going down this road without some Democrats uh, on the ship with us. We've had, uh, you know, it's interesting you, you point that out because it seems like we're spending a lot of time paying attention to lawmakers who are never going to vote for a final product. And I know that Washington is good at that. We had Mark Pocan on, the congressman from Wisconsin last hour, co-chairs the Progressive Caucus. Yesterday, it was Jim McGovern, the progressive uh, Democrat from Massachusetts. They're not they're not voting for a bill that has additional work requirements. They're not going to be likely voting for a bill that has uh, steep budget cuts either. So why are we going through uh, this this gyration when we know the center needs to pass this bill? Well, because the center, we like to think there is a center, but it's pretty imaginary at this point. It's really about what your margin was in your last election. And did you have a primary challenger? And that's a huge deal in the House, but not nearly as big a deal in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And that's where Biden has a problem, because to win the general election, he's got to appeal to independent voters, suburban voters who tend to be fiscally more conservative than progressives. So he's got to think nationally, walking away from this deal, but he's got to get some portion of progressives to vote for it. And they have to decide that they've got a Democrat in the White House and that voters will ultimately blame the White House if Mm -hmm. the economy crashes more than they're going to blame Kevin McCarthy. So, Professor, if we're sitting on College Hill talking this out and nobody's listening, what's your gut on this? How does it end? Well, I mean, I I think uh, this is my my question to you, actually, because, you know, usually we need a signal from Wall Street that they are concerned, right, or that you're concerned. We need the concern signal. We're right? kind of getting it now, aren't we? At all. I mean, at all. Like, well, I mean, the last really couple funny? of days have not been great, though. We're starting to finally see that overhang a little bit. I know we're not down a thousand points, but is that what we need? Well, we do. And then, of course, you've got the Fed and inflation and interest rates. So right. who knows what you can attribute it to, right? So we got, but this is what, you know, Kevin McCarthy has to believe that Wall Street will walk away from the Republicans in the congressional races in 2024 if he screws this up. Because if Wall Street does walk away and decide to sort of promote moderate Democrats instead of really conservative Republicans, Kevin McCarthy probably can't win the House, can't keep the House, given the eight seats in California and New York in particular that he picked up in 2022. That's got to be a signal he's aware of. He keeps reassuring Wall Street, but maybe too much because the pressure seems to be off and that squishy deadline. I assign a paper. you got to get it in that day by 1159, not midnight. you got to get it done. This is June 1st, maybe, maybe June 15th, maybe. You know, what is the deadline that things go boom? And we just, nobody in America seems to know. And I think that's a problem for the Biden administration. You've got to have a firm deadline where you say, really, this will be disaster. Well, they have given Republicans a bit of an opening there with the as early as, knowing that it's not necessarily the first. It could be the eighth. It could be the ninth. We'll find out about that. Uh, But while I've got a political scientist on the line here, I have to ask you about the big campaign announcement tonight. I don't want to sneak up on you with that wendy but i'm guessing you're going to be on twitter spaces around six o'clock eastern time am i right mm-hmm. yep checking it out yep okay so smart to go to that platform smart to have elon musk stand in front of you when you're announcing for president well yeah if your weakness is big arenas or you don't pop through a screen whether it's a phone screen tablet screen tv screen whatever screen you're looking at yeah. uh, and your big opponent is terrific at that and really charismatic you do not want to have your initial launch fail. And so just as Biden dropped a video, even though he's the incumbent president, you know, Ron DeSantis is being smart. He's going straight to the heart of where Trump succeeded in 2016. He's sort of putting it in, and Elon Musk is saying to Trump, you should have come home to me. You know, you shouldn't have stayed away. Uh, these are signals. And DeSantis is smart to do it contained and in a way that he probably sounds the best 
And because he seems to suffer from a charisma problem, or so we're told, um, this is a good way of introducing himself. His job is to spend that $110 million introducing himself to the Republican base and in polished, prefabricated, you know, slick digital uh, ads, among other things, so that he can control how he's received. You think Donald Trump shows up on Twitter tonight just to check him? Well, I I think Donald Trump should show up somewhere tomorrow. Uh, But, you know, look, Ron DeSantis can say, look, I am the younger, you know, quote unquote, prettier version of Donald Trump. And I don't have any of the baggage. Look at my family. Look at my record. I've been a governor. You know, if you're a Republican, I am the much better bet. And I'm not under indictment. And he's going to leave off the last part. But this is like this is an effort to sort. But can you really make that sort of rhetorical, rational argument in the face of the passion that Trump seems to engender in the Republican yeah, base? Right. And that's where we're about to find out. Well, we are about to find and now it's now it's going to get real. Now, once you're declared, I know Donald Trump's been knocking him, but both of these guys, this is going to be a, a fight to the death. Right. It's the only way it can end. They're, they're going to have to. Somebody's going to have to come out here swinging with one man standing. I'll, I'll keep reaching for cliches while you answer. Right. Well, so I think so. I think that's exactly right. And that is Ron DeSantis's challenge because he's a he, he's a very measured person. Right. He's a lawyer, JAG attorney. You know, he's measured. And the problem is that Republicans who might consider him want to see him fight as hard uh, as Donald Trump does. Right. He want they want to see that level and whatever it takes to win the. So is he really willing to do all that it takes and engage Trump um, the way Trump plays politics? And if he can do that, I do think he can peel off you know, some 8 to 15 percent of Trump's base because they're looking for somebody who's really going to champion what they're worried about. And if he can you know, sell himself that way, yeah. it, it would take a lot of jumping out of his own skin. You know, this is natural to Trump. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So uh, keeping up to date on the debt ceiling, negotiators are in the room right now in the old executive office building. Uh, That means two hours and more than two and a half hours they've been in that room, Kaylee, which is... We like to think a sign of progress. Kevin McCarthy today saying he will not give up. America will not default. And you like to think we're getting closer to a deal. That's where we begin our conversation. Now, I'm glad to say with Senator Bill Cassidy, the Republican from Louisiana, is back with us on Bloomberg Radio. And Senator, it's great to have you. Uh, it's been a while, and I'd love your thoughts on this. Do you do you think everyone's going home tomorrow, or is this going to be a working weekend? Well, it's probably going to be a working weekend. But let's just set the stage. Uh, when Janet Yellen said the 1st of June, she didn't really mean June 1st. She meant like the first half of June. And she made that clear this past Sunday that they have more room, more runway, if you will, than the first, the, the first day of June. So, I, so they may not come through with a solution today, and they may work through the weekend, but I think the solution will be there before we come anywhere close to 
quote unquote defaulting. Well, you're right to point out that the Treasury Secretary hasn't been firm about June 1. She very specifically said in her letter to congressional leadership as early as noting that the math here isn't perfect. It's very hard to know what receipts uh, ultimately are going to look like. Hard to kind of put all those numbers together. But she also has warned Senator about the consequences of getting too close. Even if we were to get a deal done at 1159 right before the X date, it still took that long. Are you worried about the potential consequences of just getting too close to the edge? You don't want to make, you don't want to rattle markets. You don't want the American people uh, unnecessarily upset. I'm a doctor. Whenever something bad happens, the old quote is, first take your own pulse, meaning just first calm down. Mm. Nothing happens if you panic. But I would say that they've actually stoked this. The president took like over 90 days to begin to engage. It was really unclear whether or not she meant the first day of June or the first half of June until this past Sunday when she made it clear it was not the first day of June. Of course, it could have been as early as June 1, but they knew it was not going to be June 1. So there's been a lot of, of contribution to an anxiety level that could spook markets. What we need is certainty, a president who engages, a president who leads, but also his, his secretaries who are firm with the American people. Instead, I think people are being a little bit gained as they attempt to increase pressure on Republicans. Um, And that's not good for the markets. I don't want that to happen. Well, definitely not. And it looks like the market's starting to feel this a little bit. Senator, I'm just curious about that. We've been hearing a lot about just in the last 48 hours since that that letter came out from Janet Yellen on Monday. She really hasn't changed the language, though. We've spoken with a number of folks at Treasury who say Janet Yellen actually doesn't come up with that date and has been consistent with the as early as because they can't pinpoint a specific date. So what what else should she have said? She can say what you said this past Sunday. Um, It could be, of course, as early as. Uh, It could be as early as two weeks before then. If you're just speaking with a lot of wiggle room, it could have been as early as pick your date. But when you want to say most probably or more probably than not, or listen, we can make it here. This yeah. last Sunday, she said she's not sure we can make it all the way to our low probability of making it to June 15th. Now, that's when the next quarterly payments for taxes come in, and then we're kind of flush. Uh, so even then, she left wiggle room. Uh, but the point is, is that they have money, you know, underneath the mattresses. They can delay payments for this, and they can preserve payment for that. And they know that the previous administrations have done this. All I'm saying is, uh, if you don't want to spook markets, Don't put things out there which most likely you know aren't true, but you're saying it just to give yourself uh, plausible deniability. Um, Okay, but Senator, uh, if this really is about... Is to make things clear. If this is about keeping the markets calm, ultimately about devoiding a default, however many days it took to get the White House to the table, they are out at the table now. The negotiations are happening. They're talking appropriations and budget and spending, which was in theory what Republicans wanted in the first place. Couldn't we now just raise the debt ceiling? Just do it now that you have them around the table on spending cuts? Does anyone think that President Biden would be at the would be at the table were it not for this debt ceiling? No, of course not. Of but course. he is now. Because yeah, he is. And so as soon as you raise the debt ceiling, he's gonna walk away. He wants to preserve his ability to to use unspent COVID relief dollars in the way he wishes to use them. He doesn't want work requirements. That's something which is an anathema to his base, even though we have other programs for which there are work requirements. 
however reasonable, and I think they're pretty reasonable, the work requirements that are being requested. So the only thing keeping them there is the debt ceiling. And, and I think any honest observer would accept that. And I'm sorry that it's taken that, I'm sorry it's taken that much to get the president to the table to actually begin to speak about seriously addressing how much money we're spending. Senator Cassidy, are you encouraged uh, by conversations around permitting reform? Some have suggested that this is, in fact, what will unlock a deal, and I know that's an issue important to you. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's important for all of America. I like to say, if you will, speaking metaphorically, on the left, people want permitting reform for power lines, and on the right, we want it for pipelines. But in a modern economy, both are important, and we cannot get permitting for things which are so logically should be easily permitted, and we can't because they're all tied up in a knot. Um, anyone that wants an electric economy better be in favor of permitting reform. And anyone that wants to ship natural gas and hydrogen to the rest of the world so that they can decrease their carbon footprint by replacing coal had better want permitting reform. And yet it's taken this to get the administration to focus on permitting reform. It's frustrating, but at least we're getting there. Obviously, that is part of the deal. As you mentioned, work requirements also in conversation. When it comes to the actual spending, though, there's been a lot of talk about the parts that you can't touch, defense, Social Security and Medicare, all of these mandatory sides of the ledger. But that leaves a very small slice of the pie ultimately to address and to try to bring spending down. Is it time to deal with the mandatory side? How should we do that? Well, I've been very strongly advocating that we begin to look at Social Security, not to cut benefits or raise taxes on seniors, but because the program is going in, into default, excuse me, into insolvency in nine years. And if we wait for nine years to address it, the tax, the tax increases or the benefit cuts will be that much greater. And instead, I've been proposing what I call a big idea, that we set up an investment fund separate from Social Security, put $1.5 trillion in there, and allow that to grow with the economy. And if you keep it in escrow over 65, 70 years, you take care of 75% of the debt that we otherwise will have to raise taxes for or cut benefits. Now, I'd like the president to engage on that, but he won't engage on that either. So, uh, so the president needs to show leadership, not just in this debt ceiling negotiation, but also in how do we preserve the benefits of Social Security, um, Medicare, et cetera, for the folks who depend upon it. Will your Republican colleagues engage on that, Senator? This is the Social Security was taken off the table very early in the process by the Speaker and, and the President. Well, first let me say that our proposal does not affect the 10-year window, so it has nothing to do with the debt ceiling. Understood. But we actually had seven Republicans, seven Republicans and seven Democrats who, who were working actively to a solution. And then when the President went out on the uh, State of the Union speech and started attacking Republicans, it all fell apart. Uh, as one as one of my colleagues said, he's running for re-election. He's not going to sign on Social Security bashing Republicans. He's not going to sign a reform bill. Uh, boom, we're out of here. Uh, so the president, not just not showing leadership, he's denying the opportunity for others to show leadership. It's a total failure. But in terms of your proposal, though, your legislation, Senator, do you have uh, Republican colleagues supporting that? Republicans and Democrats in the House and the Senate. Uh, we've gotten something which, again, took 75% of the issue off the table. And, and one thing I didn't mention earlier, if Social Security goes insolvent in eight years, you've got to decrease benefits under law, decrease benefits adequately so that you don't run a deficit in the Social Security Trust Fund. 
when it goes insolvent, there'll be an automatic 24% decrease in benefits for people currently receiving Social Security and for everyone who's going to receive. The actuaries say this will double poverty among the elderly. I can keep going on the terrible effects. Now, now this is what's at stake, and this is why we have responsible senators and members of the House on both parties engaged in a solution, at least until this president begins to demagogue the issue. And, of course, he is president for now. He is running for re-election in 2024, as we all well know, Senator. And there are others running as well. We just had the news crossing within the last 20 minutes that Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, has officially entered the 2024 race, of course, following just days after uh, your Republican colleague in the Senate, Senator Tim Scott, also announced his candidacy. Do you know when you're going to endorse someone in this race, Senator? Well, uh, first, I'm looking for someone who's honest with the American people. President, former President Trump, for example, just like he and Biden have the same plan for Social Security. Biden and Trump have the same plan, which unfortunately is not. It's a, in this case, the bipartisan plan is to do nothing, which means that you're going to cut seniors' benefits by 24%. I will not endorse either one of them or anyone that shares a plan to do nothing, which means that they want our seniors to have a 24% benefit cut. Uh, so I'll sort that out and see. But I want someone who's going to be honest with the American people and then think innovatively about how to address their problems, not somebody who's given happy talk. Mike Pence has been talking about that. I know he's not declared officially, but he's expected by many to run uh, senator. Is he getting closer uh, to embracing reform on the level that you want to see? Well, he's been speaking about uh, a version of what I think George W. Bush uh, proposed, which is there would be individual accounts for people. And, and, uh, and um, in that situation, unfortunately, or as just inherently, the beneficiary uh, is at risk if the market goes up or the market goes down. Politically, I can tell you, W tried it. It didn't work. In our proposal, the individual beneficiary doesn't bear the risk. The fund itself does. And the size of the fund means that it can tolerate that risk better than the individual. So I'm very pleased that uh, former Vice President Pence is addressing the issue. We've got different plans, but at least he's a guy who's coming up with something innovative as opposed to just letting the program go and solve it like uh, Trump and Biden. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's the third rail, right? It's something nobody wants to talk about, which is why I was curious your thought on it. With his big idea, Senator Bill Cassidy, <laughs> the Republican from Louisiana. Thank you, Senator, for joining us again on Bloomberg Radio. He doesn't sound terribly encouraged by what's going on here. No, at the very least, definitely not on the side of the White House. Yeah. But they're all, all around the table now, and they're still talking. We have not yet heard that the negotiators have left the room. That's exactly right. Uh, The network, we're coming up on the three hour mark here. That's got to mean something more than what we have seen in meetings that have lasted an hour or less between the principals. This may be the longest session that has been had yet. That weekend session uh, was an hour long, for instance. So Mm -hmm. they're, they're getting into something. I suspect the, uh, the pizzas are arriving soon. We'll see if they drag (laughs) out the cots tonight, Kaylee. Yeah. Well, Memorial day weekend show is quickly approaching. You know it. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.